In this episode, I'm joined by Nadia Rafat, yoga and meditation teacher, doula, and former journalist with a special interest in female empowerment and female spirituality. Nadia recounts her difficult childhood, early career in gymnastics, and multi-year rebellious phase of Class A drug use in London. Nadia recalls how attending her first yoga class radically changed her life direction, and how bringing her spiritual practices of meditation and pranayama into her own pregnancy journeys unlocked profoundly transformative effects. Having trained extensively as a doula and in pregnancy yoga, Nadia dives deep into the world of pregnancy and birth criticizing the mainstream medicalizing model and offering an alternative, more intuitive approach. Nadia also shares the powerful spiritual potential of giving birth, including her own spiritual experiences during labor, and shares her perspectives on female empowerment and spirituality. So without further ado, Nadia Rafat. Nadia Rafat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm very delighted to be talking with you today, Nadia. In our emails leading up to this conversation, you wrote something very fascinating. Childbirth is a fascinating area where mystery and medicine converge, and the terrain of the female body becomes the ground upon which this battle plays out. So mm -hmm. interesting. And you have lots of experience in this field. I'm not going to say any more about it. I'll let you talk about that. But first of all, I'm curious about your background. You've talked about uh, elsewhere the elusive connection to wholeness that you sought through your early years as a gymnast mm. and a dancer. And in fact, you were on the, the um, national squad for rhythmic gymnastics mm -hmm. as well. And did all sorts of things along those lines. So can you say a little bit about your, actually your background, your upbringing, the context in which you grew up, and also how it was you began to become involved in these, in these, um, these body-based activities? Um, sure. So I, um, I, I had quite a difficult, upbringing and um, I was quite contained and closed in as a child and I found my and young woman teenage uh, girl and I found my outlet through movement and and also through writing through the written word so um, from an early age, because my name is Nadia, I'm actually half Egyptian, um, but I decided that I was named after Comenci, the uh, Romanian gymnast. So as a young child, I went to the library, got out books on Comenci and taught myself gymnastics and uh, appealed to my mom to take me to uh, a gymnastics club. She finally got round to it when I was 12 years old, which was a bit late. Um, but uh, the, uh, the head coach saw that I was passionate about gym and said, well, you're too old for artistic gymnastics, but we're just starting up this new style of gymnastics called rhythmic gymnastics. And why don't you try out for that? So I tried out for that and got a place on the uh, club squad and it uh, filled my life for the next four or five years, totally and completely, you know, training five days a week. I was just nuts about it. It's movement based. So, um, and I was really drawn towards free movement. I could feel myself 
I could express myself through movement. And um, yeah, I mean, they were the happiest, happiest years of my young life. And they really carried me through, uh, through my early teens. And it was only when I was, I think, 16 and a combination of my mother being in hospital for six months and my Egyptian uh, father who disapproved of uh, his daughter running around in a leotard uh, refused to pay the fees. Plus, I started to go out and become rebellious. <clears throat> that it all ended, um, but it formed the foundation of, uh, you know, what would later become yoga. When I discovered yoga post university. Very interesting. I'm curious. Uh, when you say you had a difficult upbringing and you were very insular, can you say a little bit more about that? Um. Well, I. One of the things, actually, because I was I was thinking about why I, you know, why I have taken the path that I've taken, and <clears throat> I'm 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 half Egyptian and I'm half Irish. So my mother was a lapsed Catholic and my father was a lapsed Muslim. You know, but neither of them uh, uh, were into the you know the religious doctrines that they kind of inherited or or were born into. <clears throat> and I went to a Church of England school, but uh, I didn't have a great relationship with my father by any stretch. And it was during my time at this Church of England school uh, that I um, met what would be a key figure, I think, in and just being in this, uh, in this church. I got very involved in the church. I sang in the choir. I went to Sunday school, not because I had to, because I wanted to. I took myself there. And the vicar of the church, one Father Robeson, just to me was the kindest man. And you know, I think I, I, you know, I think I had a bit of a father crush on him, but he really, he really touched me, moved me in a certain, you know, in in a certain way. Not taking that the wrong way, obviously. Um, and uh, I think I was affected in a very positive way. Again, formative years uh, by my time at this you know at this church and really inspired by this man and you know I can remember kind of over the years going to Christmas services and listening to him and uh, just hearing his words and he feeling his intent you know he was a really really devout uh, compassionate loving human being and I think I was affected you know my spirituality began there back there as a young girl and it then merged with my you know my movement because I could transcend myself uh you know through through free movement um so those two strains and then I kind of expressed myself through poetry so I had all these you know I, and I still have all these strains alive in me today so I, I do feel very very blessed in many ways that I kind of found my callings very early on and they carried me, you know, through some difficult years. Mm. I'm also very curious about this rebellion, the rebellious yeah. phase, what happened there? Well, I kind of uh, spent um, uh, many years, again, I don't, uh, I don't regret any of it, but I was a bit of a wild teenager, uh, took a load of drugs, 
and um, uh, <clears throat> got lost and enjoyed being lost as well. And I, again, when I, when I reflect back on that time, I can see that uh, uh, I, was, well, I was escaping my mind. All of these things were about getting away from the self, the self that for whatever reason, I didn't feel comfortable with being in. So whether, so the drugs were another way of escaping and transcending myself. But I loved, I mean, I wasn't taking, I was, I was very aware at the time because I was, I was with lots of people and we were all taking drugs. And people were taking drugs for different reasons. You know, some people were taking drugs to have a little bit of fun. Some people were taking drugs because they made them feel better. I was taking drugs because I wanted to see what would happen the more I took and you know how far I could go and <clears throat> and again I had some <laughs> amazing moments of insight about uh, myself and my relationship with myself but I also you know lost my job and uh, <laughs> had uh, <clears throat> you know had some difficult moments had many difficult moments during that time and when I finally realized I had one of those key moments when I woke up, I, you know, I, I kind of, I, 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 I was a bit of a wild teenager. I got my act together. I went to university, had a great time at university, did an English degree, English and theater studies degree, but immersed myself in my degree. And again, it was my two things. It was movement. Uh, you know, the uh, movement in drama rather than the spoken word. And then, of course, poetry and the romantic poets, of course, they're talking about lifting the veil. There I was again. <gasps> and also doing Orientalism and looking at the effect of Buddhism and these traditional stories on English literature. So I was on the same path. I didn't really realize, but I was on the same path. And I finished my degree and it was, okay, it's time to come back to London. <clears throat> and I came back to London and I went out with some of my old friends and I was so bored. I'd kind of, you know, I'd moved away and I was sitting in this nightclub feeling really, really bored. And I was about to go home and somebody said, oh, Nadia, don't go. Here, take this. <laughs> Popped a pill in my mouth. And that was the beginning of the second wave that you know, lasted for five years. I kind of just went off for five years. And at the end of those five years, I had, that, I had one of those moments that I think lots of people have when they wake up and they say, there's gotta be more to life than this. You know, and that was the key moment. <clears throat> and then I, um, and that was it. I kind of shut down uh, the whole program I was with a boyfriend, I left him, I moved out of the flat that we were sharing that was in my name. And uh, it was the beginning of the millennium, it was 2000, 1999. I went to Brazil with my family <clears throat> and um, yeah, it was a clean line in the sand and I never looked back. Thinking of the time period there, um, 90s, late 90s there, your um, wild, wild phase, second wave. Um, rave culture in the UK. Rave scene, that's what I was thinking, yeah. So 
ecstasy very yeah. popular was that the main uh, drug you were taking at that time or what other drugs were you using to ex explore the the limits of of your of, of your experience yeah no it was i did uh, lots of ecstasy and um i tried acid a few times and then unfortunately <clears throat> the second time round there was cocaine as well so you know mixing yeah lo lots of drugs and the only drug that i that i i really feel is ugly is cocaine you know it's a dark ugly drug and I know of course there's a lot of uh interest in psychedelics right now but um yeah no I'm I, I didn't really have much experience with psychedelics and I found actually marijuana was the strongest for me I, my mind could not cope with it so it was mainly, yeah, class A's. <laughs> what do you think of this uh, psychedelic renaissance that's happening? Um, fascinating. You know. I find it fascinating. You know, my, um, my, uh, my, my, my drug days are definitely long gone. And I am uh, much more interested in my own clear mind. But I do find it interesting. I'm, I'm an interested observer. You know, I, for example, I know a lot of people who have um, taken ayahuasca and, you know, it's changed them, you know, they have visions and it's, it's very interesting. I don't feel, like I said, my, my days are done. I don't feel called to uh, go down that path, but I think it's very interesting and I'm really glad that it's being explored. You know, it was shut down in the 70s so now it's being opened up again but of course uh like anything it, you know people get lost um you know there's a shadow side yeah it's good you know I, i'm glad it's being explored mm -hmm. oh, very interesting indeed um you took your first yoga class at 30 years old yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I took my first yoga class uh, around the age of maybe 29 or 30. And it was uh, with a teacher called Fausto, uh, who was running classes at a yoga centre in uh, northwest London. And of course, as soon as I as soon as I stepped on the mat and started to move through all the postures it was like oh yeah my body recognizes this i've been here before i love this but it wasn't just it wasn't just postures and you know he he taught a deep yoga <clears throat> and again you know here i was at this point still with the same mind still with the same person so still with a degree of suffering um and i and I understood straight away what the teachings uh, were doing and just lapped it up. So yeah, I was pretty smitten straight away, but it took a while before I really got into a regular practice. And um, I met my current partner who <clears throat> was doing a kind of similar thing. At the time I was working as a journalist and I was, um, <clears throat> not really happy with my uh, my work and 
I met up with this, my current partner and he was in a, in a similar place and he was also discovering yoga. So we started to go together and he trained first. Actually, he was the one who went off and trained and then came back as a yoga teacher and started teaching. And I was still in my job as a journalist, uh, which I wasn't really happy in. I wasn't happy with the, uh, the output of the paper that I was working for and the jobs that I was being commissioned to write. And I thought, if you can do that, I can do that. So, um, but first I got pregnant. So that was, that was the beginning of the journey. I mean, the beginning of my journey really, really starts with an unplanned pregnancy, age 30, which set me off on my path. But then I trained after he was born. That's fascinating. Maybe you could say something about that. Why do you, <laughs> why do you, why do you put that as the beginning of your journey? It was Shivananda that you trained in first, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> because, um, an unplanned pregnancy is a real challenge and it was a real challenge for us both. We weren't living apart. We, we were, sorry, living apart. We weren't yet committed. It was very young in our relationship, uh, but I was 30 years old. I felt healthy. I was in love with my partner and it was just a, a yes. It was a yes from me. And, um, but uh, just because of the context, because of the situation, it was a difficult pregnancy and there was a, a lot of anxiety involved, but we were both on our, you know, we were both kind of finding our way on this um, spiritual path. We were going to yoga classes. We discovered Krishnamurti. We were going to the Krishnamurti center and um you know and i was uh, but there was a lot of uncertainty still in the in our relationship and uh i had kind of i was working very hard still at the paper because i knew i was going to leave that was kind of my going to be my my cutoff point but i was working really hard working late or nine o'clock in the evening working difficult shifts saving as much money as I could. And I didn't really do very much in the way of preparation. The one thing that we did religiously was we went uh, to uh, chanting sessions at our yoga center. And um, <clears throat> that was joyful for me because as we, you know, as we spent the evening chanting, these beautiful chants, Sri Ram, Jaya Ram, really beautiful chants, you know, I could feel, I could feel that it was great for my pregnancy. I could feel that it was so great for my body and for the baby as well. Um, but that, I, I wasn't really doing any very much pregnancy yoga. I tried to find uh, a yoga class with, um, uh, there were very few teachers around at that time, but there was this teacher called Lolly Sturk, uh, who was quite well known. And I was trying to find a class with her, but I couldn't really find one. I got the active birth book, which had just been written or, or had been written sometime before, but it was still uh, this key book by Janet Velasquez, who founded the active birth movement. And, um, <clears throat> and then I, uh, <clears throat> I booked us a retreat. It was the end of the year 
and I booked my partner and I a retreat, a new year retreat at the Krishnamurti Center. And um, for various reasons, my partner decided not to go. And I was 36 weeks pregnant, 37 weeks pregnant. And I took myself along on my own to this retreat. And I really felt that I needed it. I wanted to clear my head. It was a line in the sand. You know, I just stopped working. I was about to become a mother. Everything was still up in the air. <clears throat> I took myself along to this retreat. And I was having a lovely time by myself. And I went for a walk. And I walked for miles. It was a bright winter's uh, morning. And I walked so far, I couldn't actually, I was so tired, I, I, I didn't have the energy to uh, walk back. So I hitched a lift back to the center. I knew that I was safe with a big bump. And I stayed up all that night uh, writing. I was writing this children's story, which one day I will finish and give to my son about these two characters called Wobble and Spike. And I was Spike and my partner was Wobble <laughs> because my partner suffered from acute anxiety. And that was one of the reasons the pregnancy had been so difficult because he was really suffering. <clears throat> and I was Spike because I was all closed down. Um, and I stayed up writing this story till about two o'clock in the morning. And I, I now look back in retrospect and I see that I was behaving in a very unusual way, slightly manic way. And it was the night before I went into labor. So I woke up the next morning at 6 a.m. in labor with surges coming. <clears throat> and of course I was on my own <laughs> and slightly panicked. And at the Krishnamurti Center, they had a table where you could sit in silence to eat your breakfast. So I thought, I'll, I'll just go and sit at this table because I can't quite cope with chit chat. So I'm just gonna sit here alone and just see what's happening with my body. And, you know, the surges were building, they were becoming more and more progressive. <clears throat> and I must've looked quite alarmed because somebody came over, a woman came to sit with me. She said, are you okay? And I said, actually, I think I'm in labor. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not really sure what I should do. So she was an angel. And uh, she said, look, uh, I, think, I think, you know, you probably need to get home. And it, actually, we went and when we told the facilitators, you know, what was going on, they were so excited. Oh, there's a baby coming through at the Krishnamurti Center. How wonderful. Um, <clears throat> And so after a few hours, I got myself together and this, this lovely lady, she came with me in the taxi and we got to the station, but then there were no trains. <laughs> and I'm having now really quite strong surges, you know, they're coming every seven minutes or so. And uh, at which point I panicked and I called my mum. I said, what shall I do? And she said, just call an ambulance because... I was booked in to give birth in a London, West London hospital, and I'm out in Hampshire. And <clears throat> she said, just call an ambulance. So I, so we called an ambulance. And um, the ambulance eventually came, and this angelic person came in with me to the hospital. And I called my partner and I said, look, the baby's coming. You better get to this hospital. And I got to the hospital. 
<clears throat> and I had um, found out just before I came to the Krishnamurti Center that I had, um, that my son was in the breech position. And I later <clears throat> found out that often babies are um, breech because the mother, because the mother is on some level not ready. It can often be because there's a, a relationship issue. Um, so I had this, uh, in this breech baby, but I had a deep belief in normal birth. I hadn't really done any birth preparation, as I said, but I believed in normal birth. My mother had spent some time doing midwifery. And I said, I just want to labor normally. I just want to do, I want to give birth normally. And so I spent the day on my own <laughs> in this hospital in Hampshire, laboring, not able to cope, no skills, suffering, <laughs> doing my best, but uh, with no support because it took my partner, you know, many hours to get there. And midwives, <clears throat> they don't really support you. They just check in on you and then they go. And... Um, I think I, I managed uh, to get to about six o'clock that evening. And uh, because the baby was breached, they kept on offering me a C-section. You know, they kept on saying, we recommend a C-section. And so eventually at six o'clock, I agreed to the C-section, but I cried as I went into the operating theater because I felt that I'd failed. I felt that I let down my son and that this wasn't, you know, this wasn't the birth that I imagined that I'd had one day. I didn't even really imagine that I'd uh, have a birth, but I kind of knew I'd have children, but you know, it all happened so fast. Um, and so my son was born and as soon as he came out, he came out rooting. And as soon as I met him and put him on my breasts, he fed and, you know, that was the beginning, you know, and the mother was born and I, and because I had a lot of guilt about the cesarean, <clears throat> it then, uh, it, it then influenced the way I mothered. I practiced what's called attachment mothering because I wanted to heal, you know, the, the, uh, the wound of the cesarean. And <clears throat> once he was born, my partner's acute anxiety massively dissolved because of course it was all about so much of it was about the responsibility of becoming a father and so we had <clears throat> six months of bliss postnatal bliss this little baby lying on our chests going from mine to his and back to mine again and it, it was such a time of healing really really beautiful time of healing and we were also going at the time to <clears throat> um, Amaravati Monastery in Hertfordshire, and uh, <clears throat> you know, and had been you know had been attending workshops and retreats and talks there for a while, and so we decided that we would bless him at Amaravati, and we did, and that was really the beginning. You know, from that point on, my kind of path was set. As soon as I, as soon as I could, I applied to, uh, I knew I wasn't going to go, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to go back to a full-time job at the paper. So I began a freelance writing 
career, but I was very interested in the yoga training. And as soon as I could, I, I applied <clears throat> to Shivananda and I said, look, I've got a baby. Um, can I bring him with me? And they said, oh, we've never done this before. But uh, I said, please, I really, really want to train, but I really can't leave my son. And so they said, okay, bring him. So my son and I, off we went to the Shivananda. Uh, they were hosting their training in a place in Dorset, months ashram experience in Dorset. And I had my mother support me for two weeks, my mother-in-law for the, for the other two. And it was a pretty intense month. You know, if I wasn't in class from 6 a.m., classes started at 6 in the morning and finished at about 10. If I wasn't in class, you know, we had minuscule breaks in between. I was with my son. So it was a very intense experience. But that was the beginning. Fascinating. You've taken many subsequent trainings, actually. Mm. Um, on your side, I've seen everything from hypnotherapy to dancing for birth to yoga nidra to another Shivananda training and so on. Mm. So can you give a sense of, of the next period of time, which I presume was uh, or I assume was a period of, of, of training, exploration and, and setting up, I suppose, a teaching practice and so on. And uh, somewhere along the way, you had three more children. Yeah, yeah. So, Actually, child, number two, child number two was conceived on the last day of the teacher training, <laughs> which was me being a bit naughty because uh, you're uh, meant to, you know, have uh, maintained brahmacharya throughout the uh, training. And my partner came up to collect me on the last day. And of course, having kind of been immersed in a month of, uh, yoga, meditation, vegetarian food. <laughs> I obviously missing him. And uh, uh, yeah, so um, my second son was conceived for sure on the last day because uh, a few weeks after that, three or four weeks after that, I was crawling along the floor of my home with sickness, feeling absolutely dreadful. Um, but you know, it was really, yeah. So the, 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 we we laugh about it because the two boys, you know, they their their lives, their entry points, and their early lives were so marked by, uh, you know, our respective journeys. But once I came back from that um, from that training, yeah, everything was clear. And of course, once I had my second pregnancy, after I'd got over the dread of, um, oh no, not again, not again, I'm pregnant again. And that means I've got to go through that whole process again, you know, and real dread. I, I think at around six months, I had a turning point, five or six months, there was a turning point and it was like, okay, you know, we're gonna do this and we're gonna get this together. And um, I quickly, at the time, if you had a cesarean, you were, you're, 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 you're classified as what's called a VBAC, which means a vaginal birth after cesarean. And they, at that time, so this is uh, 17 years ago, 
you know, they kind of they have a discussion with you and decide, you know, do you want to have a go at a VBAC or do you want to go for another cesarean, in which case it needs to be elective. So you have this, you have the operation before you go into labor. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I said, no, I'm definitely going to attempt to VBAC. But at the time, and it's not changed very much, if you were uh, attempting a VBAC, they would call it a trial of scar, a trial of scar. And what that meant was that you needed to go into hospital, you needed to be constantly monitored, tied up to a, a machine, so you can't really move very much. You've got this heavy metal dial, so they're tracking the heartbeat of the baby. Uh, you can't get in the birthing pool, and um, uh, you know there's, there's very little that you can do. You have to just sit there and uh, uh, be monitored constantly throughout. And I knew that that wasn't going to work for me. And so I said, no, I want to have a home birth. And can you support me having a home birth? Because I was kind of done with hospitals. During the, also, another factor is that my father had passed away when I was quite young. So, you know, I associated hospitals with death and I'm not life. <clears throat> and I, 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 I knew instinctively that I needed to get out of the hospital. And I discovered that a thing called home birth existed. <clears throat> and I was strongly advised against this. At every appointment, I was told that I was irresponsible, that it was dangerous, that my baby might die, that I would be airlifted to, uh, to hospital by helicopter, um, and that I was, yeah, foolish and irresponsible. All of those things were said to me. And, um, and then I chanced upon a meeting with a friend of a friend who was an independent midwife. And I said, you know, can we have a chat? Because this is what I'm feeling. And she said to me, oh, yeah, you're a VBAC. Oh, we, we, we do VBACs at home all the time. Oh, yeah, that's no problem. And so whereas the system was putting the fear of God into me and in every appointment I walked out feeling like I was a bad mother, you know, really irresponsible. Here was somebody who was giving me strength and giving me confidence. And uh, so I quickly made the decision, you know what, I'm leaving the system behind. I'm going to do this independently. And, um, and that's what I did. And I was really lucky because uh, I surrounded myself with four strong, independent women who deeply believed in birth. You know, my independent midwife introduced me to a hypnobirthing, hypnotherapy for birth was just beginning. She introduced me to a woman who was practicing hypnobirthing. <clears throat> I found this incredible pregnancy yoga teacher called Ingrid Lewis. And she just gave me strength. You can do this. Of course you can do this. Because as a VBAC, you don't have confidence in your body because you fail the first time. So there isn't that innate trust in the body. And I, uh, <clears throat> I prepared for the birth in every possible way that I could. And I had the most beautiful home birth with no dramas nothing scary happening at all. My son was born, my second son was born. And, um, and from that point onwards, you know, I would say I was a bit of a zealot at that point because I, 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 I saw very clearly 
that you know there was a, 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 a real mismatch here between what we were being told and what was the truth. And so I think with my second child, through maybe 12 weeks old, as soon as he was old enough, maybe four months, I signed up to my first pregnancy yoga training. And that was with a, 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 a lady called Francoise Friedman, who is an incredible person and teacher and the founder of Birthlight, which is a international training program. And, and I remember her looking at me disapprovingly because there I was with another training, another baby. And she said, you know, you should be at home. But I said, no, I need to do this training. I need to do it now. I've got my baby, let's go. And yeah, so from that point on, really, it was, it was you know, pregnancy all the way. But as you've seen from my website, I, because I'm, I love yoga, you know, I love the practice. I kept on kind of doing uh, trainings and studying traditional yoga. And then I would go to any, any workshop that I was at, and I went to many over the years, and I'd attend and say, yes, but how is this relevant to pregnancy? How can I use this uh, to support pregnancy? So <clears throat> that was really, you know, the beginning of years of training. Everything, you know, I, I, so, so many different practices, as you've seen, both in, in uh, traditional yoga and, you know, I studied Scaravelli, um, Donna Fari, when she uh, started to teach internationally, I went to all of her workshops. Um, I looked more broadly, I, I began to uh, really explore as well meditation. And although that came slightly later, and then of course I went deeply into pregnancy as, as, uh, as much as I could. And then I trained to become a doula soon afterwards as well. And, you know, I'm still today a practicing doula. So of course that's, uh, you know, that's right there in the field, watching and learning about birth. You've talked about a combination of yoga, uh, free dance and mindfulness as <laughs> sort of your, I suppose, ideal preparation package. Mm -hmm. um, so I can see these threads coming together now in your story. Well, perhaps before we go into the birth more specifically, could you say something about the meditation side then? Um, and then perhaps we'll circle back because I think then talking about uh, your uh, investigations into uh, pregnancy and birth and all the various different um, trainings and uh, experiences you had there, I think perhaps leads us down a road also towards what you've called uh, female empowerment and female spirituality. So I'm really interested in that in particular. But uh, for the sake of completeness, could we say something about your meditation interests and training before we circle back? Yeah, so it began uh, with um, the uh, monastery in Hertfordshire, Theravadan, Amaravati Monastery in Hertfordshire. And what I, what I did in my, in my freelance career as a journalist, once I'd left the paper, what I did was um, take myself off on all sorts of uh, adventures and, 
you know, I would get commissions to write about them. So I'd try out lots of different practices. And I, um, I was already going, I was already attending Amaravati uh, with my partner, Angus, and, you know, we'd go and listen to beautiful talks with Ajahn Sumedho, who is the uh, head uh, there at Amaravati. And he is an incredible teacher and he is, you know, widely sought after and um, has a huge following, not just local to the monastery. Um, and so I thought I'm going to go and do a retreat. It's time to, you know, go a little deeper. So I signed, this is before I had my kids. So I signed myself up for a three-day silent retreat. And I remember sitting at a table with 25 people eating in silence and just thinking, this is a revelation, <laughs> loving it. Loving it because, you know, someone who's more introvert than extrovert, and certainly was, um, I, just, uh, I just enjoyed so much the uh, freshness that silence brought to experience. And on that particular retreat, which I, I remember really fondly, I mean, of course, 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking, that's it for three days. I, I really sat with my mind and discovered, you know, that my mind will just latch onto anything in order to think something. And I can remember, you know, having some hilarious thoughts. You know, what is that about? Where has that come from? But unfortunately, I read a lot during the retreat. I read all the literature. You know, Amravati has an incredible library. And I went there and when we had a few, whenever we had a break and <clears throat> I was reading all these beautiful books in the library and yes, I read. So of course my mind stayed stimulated, um, but I really enjoyed the experience. And when I came back to London and arrived at King's Cross Station, which I'm sure you know, you know, it was shocking because even though my mind had been stimulated, still in comparison to, you know, I mean, I had moments of course of stillness and the experience was generally a, a very still experience, a quiet experience. So coming back to King's Cross Station was pretty trippy. And, uh, <clears throat> and so that was the first time that I did a, a silent retreat. And then the second time I did one, um, sometime later, I, this time uh, the retreat leader, you know, suggested that we, we don't read. You know, we no, no reading at bedtime, no reading of the pamphlets about the retreat, just no reading. And so I did that and the experience was massively different and, um, and deep, you know, periods of real stillness. So I had those types of experiences. And then of course, all the Dharma talks. And, you know, one of the talks that I remember with Ajahn, uh, words that landed uh, were 
somebody had asked a question about paths, pathways. And um, he, you know, he said that, you know, there wasn't necessarily a need for a path, but that some people need paths. You know, there didn't need to be a path. It's all around us. It's just there for us to drop into, but that some of us need paths. And I, I, I'd kind of heard that from a few places. And of course, as someone who struggled to join any kind of program or path or religion, you know, I couldn't, I was never going to go into Islam, nor Catholicism, nor, nor, nor Christianity. I, I couldn't sign up to anything. Um, and Krishnamurti also talked about the same thing. So this kind of idea of uh, the pathless path was interesting to me. So little things kind of drop in. And Francoise Friedman later, you know, picked up on that theme as well. Um, so <clears throat> I suppose threads were being woven together in my experience you know, touching into this place beyond thought, um, a place of stillness, a place of connection. And these experiences just became more tangible. Um, and of course, through the yoga tradition, you know, you have the uh, the eight limbs of yoga, it's another path. And um, so, so, so through the yoga, the, the, the yoga trainings and the yoga tradition, of course, we're, you know, we're on this path and in the yoga tradition, of course, you have, you have your asana, it's limb number three, followed by pranayama. Um, and, and then you have pratyara, it's the beginning of stillness. And um, and I really notice that the meditations that I experienced after yoga were deep and empty. You know, my mind was empty. Whereas if I went along to a, a, a session at, whether it was at um, Amaravati or when I went through a phase of attending the Shambhala Center and doing their program as well, and that was interesting because they teach meditation with the eyes open. So I found that quite interesting. Um, but whenever I attended these trainings or these workshops, I came across my mind. You know, I'd sit and there was my mind because I had done no, no, no practice. I wasn't, it wasn't embodied or I hadn't stilled the energy through the practice and through the breath work. So <clears throat> I, there were two very different, they seemed like two very different pathways. One was where you, you meet the mind and you witness the mind. And so you see, you know, you see yourself, you see your habits, you see uh, your filters. And the other was about really emptying the mind through through movement, through breath work, and then finding, you know, a, a stillness, yoga. Um, and so those 
and I and I do feel that they are equally valuable and equally interesting. And it was then that I discovered mindfulness, and I started to uh, uh, I did the eight week MBSR, you know, all the John Kabat-Zinn stuff that exploded everywhere. What is that? A decade ago, maybe more. So I started looking into mindfulness. And because, of course, I'm a mum, I found the Noetic Society and Cassandra, I forget her second name, she had written this book, Mindfulness for Mothers. So I did her course, read her book, got very excited. And, and so I started to offer my own Mindfulness for Mother circles because I was doing those of postnatal work as well, all the postnatal yoga I trained in. And so I started to offer mindfulness for mother circles. And, you know, that was really, really interesting and really, really supportive because mothering is really hard work. It's really challenging. And, um, and then when I became pregnant for the third time, I now was interested in the mind in pregnancy and the mind in childbirth. And, uh, and so that was a fascinating um, journey because I was much more attentive. You know, yoga is very much, even though theoretically and ultimately yoga is about the body and the mind, but certainly in pregnancy at that time, it's very, you know, it's a body practice. It's asanas, it's pranayama, and the pranayama was very focused on breathing through labor and then there was no discussion about the mind. You know, classes were asana, pranayama for labor, and then birth preparation, practical birth preparation. You know, this is how you use a ball. And, you know, this is, uh, uh, these are some of the birthing positions. So it was, it was very practical. And there wasn't really much about the mind. What was happening was that people would go and do hypno, hypnosis. And I had some time before that, right at the beginning, again, explored hypnotherapy. And I began, I did a six month hypnotherapy taster. And at the end of the six months, I decided it wasn't for me. And that was partly because I just read Autobiography of a Yogi. It's an old book, but in that book, you know, he, he, um, he said, you know, hypnotherapy is not, it's different. Don't, you know, don't go for hypnotherapy. And, um, and also I was so deeply committed to yoga and fascinated by the teachings of yoga and the practices of yoga. And it felt like, because a lot of, uh, a lot of the practices of hypnotherapy are about dissociation. They're about taking you away from the experience. And here I was uh, being trained in yoga to turn towards the experience. And so I, 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 I kind of closed down my interest in, uh, in hypnotherapy. But hypnobirthing had exploded. And so people were coming to yoga classes for the body and then going to uh, hypnobirthing classes to relax their minds. And, um, and I really saw that um, just really through witnessing my own mind, I had this moment <clears throat> when I realized 
at the end of every, every one of my four, I've subsequently had two more, every one of my four pregnancies and births have been challenging in some way. You know, number one was a breach. Number two, I was V-backing at home, H-backing. Number three, my daughter, she kept me waiting. I went into labor at 42 weeks. Again, having a home birth, still classified as a V-back. And, um, but babies one and two came at 37 and a bit. So, uh, you know, I had to navigate all the stress of an induction, whether you're in England or America or most countries around the world, France, they have a 41 week gestation period, but everywhere else it's 40 weeks. So once you get to 41 weeks, they're booking you in for an induction and an induction is a, is a, is a, a clinical uh, process, nothing to do with birth. And I really, and you can't be at home. So, you know, uh, and I remember, you know, viscerally the pressure, the pressure is so intense. And so of course I was much more interested in my mind and watching how my mind was suffering. My body was suffering because of other people's thoughts about my birth and my thoughts about my birth. And so I had this real insight, actually more at the end of the final birth. Uh, and then the, the last one was the most challenging of all from a, a kind of clinical point of view because um, my waters went before I went into labor and I didn't go into labor for five days and they want to induce you after 24 hours. Of course, by this time, I've been working in this field for over a decade. I had a deep trust in my body, and I, and I, and I knew as much as my care providers about the birthing process. And so I, I pushed it, and I kept on pushing it. <clears throat> but the pressure is immense, and, um, and the bullying and the coercing, and so I realized at the end of all of this that actually the two big obstacles, the two things that have caused me the most suffering all the way through were number one, the system, and number two, my own mind. And of course, what you're thinking, you're feeling as well. But I really saw that my mind and the mind is the source because we believe our thoughts. Unless we, unless we learn otherwise. <clears throat> so yeah, that was really um, the journey into mindfulness and bringing mindfulness uh, to childbirth preparation. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a journey. Yeah. Amazing. I'm wondering if we might talk a bit now about your work around pregnancy and birth and so on and uh the field in general actually what why is there such a you've been describing an almost a kind of adversarial uh, mm. approach almost you're using words like bullying and pressure and this sort of thing mm. um what's going on can can you give some something of a i don't know a historical context for how this is all unfolded and what it is that people like yourself and doulas and uh, other um this sort of newer wave, I suppose, of, of professionals in this field are doing. Can you give a sense of that? When did it become this kind of adversarial 
Um, and why did it become this kind of adversarial thing? Mm, good question. You know, it's to, to really understand the issues in childbirth, you, you kind of have to go right back to the beginning because traditionally, of course, childbirth has been the domain of women. It's been women's work. Midwives are ancient. They're transglobal. I mean, a global history of childbirth is more or less, uh, uh, you know, a female history. And um, midwives were very much uh, spiritual as well. There was a spiritual dimension to midwifery. You know, they worked with herbs. Um, they, they opened the windows to let bad spirits out. Women were supported by family members. Men were usually sent off. And it was really, you know, the beginning of clinical birthing uh, kind of coincides with industrialism and, uh, uh, you know, this uh, view of uh, the body as a machine. And uh, when, when I think the first instrument was forceps, the first instrument to come into childbirth was forceps and the, the, um, the man who invented them said that, you know, uh, uh, he, only he could be there. And then he only trained men to handle forceps. Doctors uh, were trained to use forceps and then wealthy women would bring in doctors to be there with their forceps just in case. Because childbirth has always been dangerous and it always will be dangerous. It's an inherently... Uh, uh, uncontrollable process, even, even today, even in 2022, with all our tech and all our machines. Um, <clears throat> and that was really uh, the beginning. And then of course, uh, uh, you know, more instruments were developed and um, more doctors were trained. And then the church uh, registered midwives and, um, and then of course you had uh, um, the transition from the home to units that were again mid mid midwife led. But at some point um, there was a decision that childbirth would be safer in hospital. And there's this incredible story um, that uh, this study was done, is childbirth going to be safer in hospital and the study was done and the conclusion was yes that childbirth would be safer in hospital I, I forget the details around the study but um, um, the decision was made that childbirth would be moved into hospital and midwives who had always been separate as a you know there was a separate practice then became uh, uh, woven in to medicine but hierarchically therefore beneath doctors so therefore answering to obstetricians of course you had the advent of obstetrics and childbirth moved into hospital and then sometime later and uh, uh, a statistician a female statistician decided to look into this study and she looked deeply into the study and she found out that actually they were wrong and that statistically 
childbirth was safer at home. And she went to all the, the, um, the key uh, medical journals and uh, associations. And she said, look, I've done this research and actually this is the correct research and, and, and birth is safer at home. And of course, nobody listened to her. And I think her results weren't published till about 10 years later, um, by which point hospital birth had been normalized. And I think it was only, I mean, for example, you know, my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse, senior nurse, who'd done a little bit of midwifery. And um, she, uh, I was born in the 70s. And at the time, you know, she, she wanted an obstetrician. She, she wanted a clinical birth. And I can remember when I was a journalist, it was the, it was the advent of the cesarean section. And I can remember reading articles by obstetricians heralding this incredible operation and why I'm going to be giving birth by cesarean section. And then of course you had the two posh to push phenomenon. But you, might have to, you might have to disambiguate that term for the non-British. <laughs> ah, okay. Listeners. <laughs> Well, I mean, of course, it, I know I know exactly what you mean. But. <laughs> well, it was representing, you know, the height of the cesarean was here is this operation, this tidy operation. You book yourself in. You can bypass the whole experience. You don't even have to go. You know, you can uh, preserve your body, and uh, um, and 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 it's easy. Who needs to push a baby out? What's the point of vaginal birth? There was a moment when the whole process of birth was being questioned. Um, but always and alongside this has been a continuous uh, intuitive counter uh, intelligence that is birth, is birth is normal, birth is natural, birth, childbirth is important, important, it's a spiritual process. And the first kind of big reaction came uh, in the, uh, well, it was when, um, you know, when feminism was at its height with the active birth movement. And, um, and it's interestingly, the same time when female yoginis and female yoga practitioners were beginning to question what's happening here with yoga. You know, is, this practice is, is, uh, is very male dominant, all the teachers are male, the practices are very uh, male centric. And actually I'm not sure this is <clears throat> teachers like Angela Farmer who you interviewed. You know, so around that time you had the first those first few teachers who were getting pregnant, they were suddenly pregnant. And actually, I, at the time, if you were pregnant, the Iyengar Institute, it threw you out. You were no longer allowed to practice yoga. So at that same time, as the female yoga practitioners were being kicked out and, you know, uh, uh, questioning yoga practice for the female body, women like Janet Velasquez, <clears throat> uh, were saying, hang on a minute, we don't want to give birth lying down with our legs in stirrups. You know, um, prior to, you know, the turn of the century and uh, before that, women were drugged in twilight sleep. They weren't even present for their births. I mean, it became 
really barbaric. You know, you would go into hospital, you would be strapped down, you would be given drugs. Your baby would then be taken away from you and put in a nursery and given to you to feed uh, for a certain amount of time and then taken away again. And those times were dictated by the hospital staff. It was a brutal time, you know, from an empathetic perspective where there was no consideration. It was the height of medical birthing. And by the time we got to the 70s, 80s, 90s, <clears throat> um, you know, we had this rebellion. And the rebellion was active birth, which Janet Velasquez was the figurehead for. And I've interviewed her myself. And, you know, she said that she, the movement was there, the energy was there, and she just happened to be there. You know, she happened to be standing up and saying, what's going on? But the energy was there, you know, the feminine, it was that first female rising. And it was happening in yoga, it's happening in birth, it was happening everywhere. And there was, I mean, it, and there were other uprisings as well. But at the active birth movement was significant because um, women heard, women heard. And they said, we don't want to lie on our backs anymore. We want to get up off the bed. We want to give birth standing up. And um, uh, it was the beginning of the, what's called in hospital, the home from home birth unit. So uh, a movement away from a more medicalized model at the same time, the birthing pool was introduced. And so there was the beginning of this uh, uh, interest in uh, facilitating uh, a more normal birth for women who didn't want to have an epidural and, and have a cesarean section. And of course, that was when pregnancy yoga began. That's the beginning point of pregnancy yoga with Janet Velasquez, Lolly Stark, the teacher I mentioned earlier. Over in America, Janine Pavati Baker was doing the same thing. And um, the lineage that she spawned uh, led more into women's shamanism. So over in Australia, there's someone called Jane Hardwick Collins who learned from Janine. Janine was a yoga teacher and a birth activist and, um, and deeply interested in holistic birthing, natural conception, you know, tapping into all the old ideas about conscious conception, conscious birthing, leading to conscious parenting. And so she you know, spawned a different lineage. But it was the beginning of this uprising that led to many changes. And then, you know, like any small uprising, the energy disappeared, dissipated. And we're in the middle of another second uprising now. And the voices are strong again. And that's because there is, um, uh, the, despite, you know, despite the fact that doulas are everywhere, despite the fact that there are hypnobirthing classes on every corner, um, pregnancy yoga at every studio, you know, the information is out. The statistics are worse than they've ever been. There's a lot to do with the COVID situation as well. 
but the statistics are uh, worse than there ever been. Which statistics? statistics. So I mean, I'm not to say the numbers, but what what do you, you mean of people who are engaging in home births versus hospital? Yes. Oh, the home birth the home birth rate is minuscule. It's tiny. But you know, one quarter of all births are being uh, uh, are ending in one third in London hospitals are ending in the cesarean section. So one third of babies are being born by cesarean. What's that down to? Is that down to um, uh, lack of preparation or understanding from the mother's side? Or is it a kind of, if you want, trend from the medical side that's pushing that or some mixture or what, what's behind that? It's political, for sure. You know, our, uh, our health minister has this uh, idealistic and uh, ignorant, actually, uh, mission to have zero stillbirths and you know that's the kind of the political agenda and of course it's also financial because um litigation maternity litigation is is possibly i'm not 100 percent sure on this but it's either the first or the second the higher you know they, it's the most expensive area for um, problems arising. And um, so it's political, it's financial, it's cultural, because nobody questions hospital birth. And um, it's cultural. Look what's on television at the moment. I mean, I, I haven't actually watched it, but primetime BBC is a... Uh, a program that totally and utterly mis misrepresents birth. This is going to hurt. It's been um, it's been widely criticised by the birthing community. Whenever anyone thinks of childbirth, you know they they're, they're not in a home. They're not at a lovely home. They're in a hospital. There's usually screaming. There's drama, and the medics save the day. That's the common, and it's much worse in America. Actually, in England, we're one of the most progressive countries around. It's worse in Europe. It's dreadful in America. And the overriding machine of obstetrics with its agenda of every baby, which is a noble agenda. It's not that it's, it's a noble agenda. We want to save every baby. But in order to save every baby, you know, like the, those terrible fishing trawls. You're, you know, to use that metaphor, in order to catch one, I don't know what, a dolphin, how many tuners are you gonna get as well? So in order to save that one compromised baby, let's induce everyone. Because that one baby, if, if left, um, make it lost. We're just going to induce everyone. And, you know, we'll monitor as many people as possible. And are uh, you really uncomfortable? We'll have some pain relief because actually we're really short staffed and it's easier to manage when people are <clears throat> not requiring support. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the industry is in crisis. You know, there are no midwives training. Um, the last few years have been a real struggle 
for midwives that you know they and 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 lots of those uh, uh, parallel um, staffing units you know they work ridiculous shifts they're poorly paid and there's a real culture of you know you toe the line I mean management and layers of management layer upon layer of management and somewhere in the midst of that you've got a young mother much like I was when I was 30 having the peak experience of her life you know it's the biggest for those first-time mothers coming through 30 early 30s they have not suffered the majority of them have not really suffered and they have to go through this incredible experience it can be so incredible so beautiful so life transforming i mean it is whichever pathway you take um but the system the system's not interested in that one individual story you know the system has 400,000 babies to birth each year it's one size fits all and so you've got this you know you've got this structure that is with guidelines and protocols decided by people in suits and uh um people who have no direct connection with, you know, the on the experience on the ground, on the ward. You know, the midwives on the ward, they're doing their best. But some of them, they don't even see normal births. I read somewhere, I, I really hope it's changed, that most obstetricians, by the time they begin their training, have not witnessed a normal birth, a physiological birth. So, you know, the, 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 the world of birth is, and then this is what I talk about, uh, this is what I mean about the pressure. You know, you have to be a real, I mean, I was a stubborn, stubborn person <clears throat> who had a deep, deep belief and trust in physiological birth. And I think, I believe that we all do in the back of our brain, <clears throat> you know, back here somewhere, primitive, you know, the birthing, the whole birthing process is happening in the ancient brain, in the limbic system. It's nothing to do with uh, our ideas and theories of birthing. It's, it's in us. And yet there's so much deep fear engendered over and and, and 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 you know for women the memories of the last 100 years are are clinical birthing you know when you talk about the collective and you talk about your ancestry and these things are important in 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 uh in birthing and in the feminine you know the red thread maybe you've heard this talk of the red thread and the female lineage. And so it is, um, it, it's what are you feeling in your body and what are the thoughts that you have? And then what are other people telling you? And so it takes real determination to manifest a physiological birth.
today, which is sad. I find it deeply sad. You know, um, it sounds to me like you're not against the medical system uh, in cases where it might be necessary. And of course, I expect there's a bit of a gray area there. Um, but you're not so keen on this one size fits all approach to, to births that perhaps don't need medical assistance. It sounds to me that's what you're saying, that you're not out and out against medical intervention. Um, in, in some cases, perhaps I'm wrong about that. I'm wondering if you might talk perhaps to um, to that relationship. And also, I suppose, and then I would like to ask you perhaps to finish after after all this about female spirituality and female empowerment. You've, you've, you've talked about that um, as a special interest of yours. But also, what, if you want, is the positive message? So you've critiqued the overreach, at least this is what I'm hearing, uh, the overreach of, of, of the system, this kind of one size fits all. Perhaps uh, the critique is, is more profound than that, but that seems to be part of, part of the critique you're saying. What's the, what's the positive um, message? You know, you're, you're work, when you're working as a doula or you're um, supporting a woman through pregnancy, birth, and even after, actually, birth, you will visit them a number of times. What's the experience going to be of working with somebody like you? Uh, what are the messages you're going to be bringing? You know, I have I've, I've thought a lot about this over the years um, as I try to personally navigate my way through uh, wanting to support uh, women as much as possible on their journey to motherhood, uh, the spiritual journey, the, phys the physiological journey and the practical journey. You know, it's a multi-dimensional journey. Their whole life is changing. And, you know, there have been some really interesting studies uh, done on uh, what a woman experiences during a physiological childbirth. It's an incredible, uh, it's an incredible internal mind-body experience. It's an altered state. You know, and, you know, there you go back to the, you know, the early threads of my story and my interest in altered states of consciousness. It is an altered state of consciousness, and it's often a very spiritual state of consciousness. And all of the, um, all of the, you know, the traditions and the, uh, the wisdom teachings around childbirth, you know, talk about this transcendent experience. And it's through... You know, it's through the, uh, you know, it's through the challenges, it's through the uh, um, inevitable shadows that you meet. You have to meet your shadows on the way uh, to birth your baby. But through that experience, you know, through the fire of the birth, the mother is born, this new archetype, especially for those first time women entering as maidens, emerging as mothers. And it's a chemical archetype as well. You know, it's the hormones of the body are producing this, uh, this mother. And the more you interfere with the process, uh, the more the archetype is, uh, is affected. So the hormones, they're just not there. 
if you, you, if you interfere with this incredible matrix, you don't get the same experience. She won't have the same experience. Um, she might not care for her baby in the same way. And that's fascinating. The breastfeeding is impacted. The attachment is impacted. And so, you know, I'm committed to supporting that journey as much as I can and as much as she wants it. But I'm also committed to empowering every woman on her journey towards birth. And so that's, that's quite a difficult, it's a difficult path to walk and you know you so so you have to you have to if you want to have a physiological birth you've really got to you know you, there's a lot that you have to do it's not an easy thing as I said so there's a lot of commitment that's there we didn't talk about the free birthing movement that's a new phenomenon and it's expressing free birthing means you know of course outside the system altogether uh, and, and it's expressing this deep need for uh, women to regain their autonomy and disassociate from this clinical, mechanical, and inevitably technical. It's soon to become technical. I mean, the machines are, you know, they're being negotiated and designed right now uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, and they'll be in birthing as well. And, you know, women are trying to, find their independence away from that. So that's the free birthing movement. And, and you know, personally, I'm deeply committed to physiological birth. I like to say I work for mother nature. You know, I don't work for the NHS. Nadia, don't let me um, uh, misconstrue your critique then of the system. I, I was, my understanding of what you were saying was that you didn't like the overreach, but Perhaps I'm minimizing your critique. Perhaps you're against it entirely. That's why I invited you to correct me if I was wrong with what I was hearing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's kind of a little bit between the two. I'm definitely um, I, I'm definitely committed to physiological birth, but there is a there's a of course there's a place and a need for um, intervention. And when it's needed, thank God it's there. Thank God it's there. Um, and um, we're all deeply grateful for medical interventions when they're needed. For personally, for me, I don't think, I, 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 I don't believe that childbirth even belongs in hospital unless there are complications, in which case those women should be in hospital. So that's the uh, you know that's the separate that's the separation point. So I, I've got to the point now where I'm a real advocate for home birth. If you've got no problems and you want a physiological birth, let's bring birth childbirth back home where it belongs, out of the medical establishment. Is that going to happen? Probably not. Um, you know, many trusts are even closing down their home birth units. It's all centralization, centralization at the moment, uh, which uh, is deeply frustrating. But I have full respect for the medical establishment and for obstetrics. Um, but unfortunately, obstetrics has monopolized childbirth. 
So, you know, that's, that's my position. Um, <clears throat> sorry, what was your second question? You were actually describing it just, just perfectly. It was to do with what you um, advocate, essentially, and what you're doing in your work. What's the message that you're bringing when you're supporting a mother-to-be? What are you telling her? And um, what uh, are the counter-narratives that you're offering, etc.? And you've, you've been describing that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I've... In, in recent years, I've moved into teacher training. Um, I'm working with, at the moment, I'm working with uh, a, 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 a collection of pregnancy yoga teachers. We're doing a kind of advanced pregnancy teacher training. And, you know, we're discussing a lot of these challenges that arise because we are, we are teachers of yoga. You know, that's what we're doing. We're bringing the, the teachings of yoga, the practices of yoga to the special state of pregnancy. And of course, yoga is about ultimately uh, uh, turning towards experience, opening towards your experience and um, uh, aligning yourself with experience. The ultimate expression of physiological birth is, you know, there's a point in the labor and it's usually during transition. And I've never been with a woman, including myself four times, when at that point they haven't said, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't want to do this. You know, and they'll say all sorts of things. They'll try to get away. They'll ask for pain relief. It's a well-known phenomenon. And it's because it's become really hard. You know, you've got back-to-back 90-second -back surges. They are so all-consuming. There's no rest. And if you lose your concentration, you, you suffer. You cry out. <clears throat> and I, and I realized, and it was so wonderful to hear it articulated the other day, but I realized that was the death of ego. Because the person who's saying, I can't do this anymore, it's not the body. The body's doing what it does. The body's in labor. It's the controller. And the controller has been controlling the experience up to that point with their breathing, with their concentration, you know, with all the support. And they've realized that actually they cannot control this anymore. And it's at that point, usually, you know, if they're just, if they are softly encouraged through that moment with love, with support, that the controller just surrenders. It's like the last surrender. And it is the most incredible moment because at that point, she becomes the birthing body. You know, it's not the same because the you know the path of liberation is the path out of the body you know the path towards clearing the mind is the path out of the body this is happening right down at her base chakra it's embodied it's fully embodied but the controller is gone and for that last part of the um uh, the deep labor active labor as it's known in birthing um, you know, the body and 
the vessel are one, but vessel in its really positive sense, rather than vessel in its kind of patriarchal sense of women have to, you know, sublimate themselves for the sake of, you know, their babies. It's something beautiful as opposed to something disempowering. <clears throat> and, um, and, and, and then of course, through that, the, uh, not long after that, you know, the baby starts to come, the second stage begins and it's a different physiological state again. That, that is an incredible process. And when women get to experience that, they come through and there have been studies done on this, many, many interviews of women who've experienced physiological birth and they come out the other side empowered, feeling incredible, feeling like they can do anything. And that is the legacy of uh, the mother being born. And it's, it's an awesome experience. And um, for any woman that undergoes that, you know, she never forgets, she never, well, women never forget their births anyway. You never forget your birth. And, you know, if it's a negative experience, Often women carry great sadness and great trauma. There's a lot of women with PTSD now. It's the latest label that's applied to uh, childbirth. And rightly so, because you're incredibly vulnerable in that place. And if you're, being, if you're not being loved and looked after, it's a very, very, can be a very scary experience. You know, your legs open, naked, utterly, uh, utterly exposed. You know, there's a reason because a woman in, in that state in childbirth, she, she's, she's vulnerable. So it's a beautiful, it can be the most incredible, empowering experience. And of course, it's also, there's so much happening through a physiological birth for the baby as well, on every level. And so, um, that's the message, you know, the message is maternal transformation, maternal empowerment. But then whatever birth you have, we need to support women in that, uh, on that journey. Hmm. Nadia, why do you do this? You're making this gesture with this transition point, this death of the ego, as you put it, and you're taking your hands up to your head and your forehead and kind of drawing them away like that as almost as if you're sort of parting a veil in front of the face. Why do you, why do you associate that gesture with this transitional, this transition point uh, experience that you're describing? Because it's mind opening. It's, it's, yeah, it's opening the drawing back the curtains, opening the mind. And uh, as I said, you know, the, the controller is dissolved for a short period of time. Hmm. And it's expansive. But it's, it, it's interesting because, uh, as I said, there have been lots of um, uh, interviews done and studies done on the, uh, the psychology of physiological birth. And, you know, the, 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 the terms that are used are almost the opposite and it brings you back to this embodiment that <clears throat> you know a sense of 
Uh, I talk a lot about um, in, in yoga, pratyahara. I think pratyahara, which is that fifth limb, is very relevant in birthing because, of course, it's the withdrawal of the senses. And um, it, it was never, of course, meant for childbirth. But what happens at that time is that in, in, in deep labor, if the, mo if the matrix is flowing, is that the woman, she becomes animalistic. You know, she gets down on all fours, close to the ground. She stops talking. Her eyes are closed. She stops seeing. She stops listening. And women describe being a universe away from anyone else in the room. You know, they're on their own as they turn inwards. And they describe uh, feeling that they are, you know, they look drowsy. They sometimes look drugged, stoned. But they are so acutely aware of only the task in hand. So there's a real brightening of this internal embodied awareness and everything else is forgotten. And I remember after the birth of my daughter, <clears throat> which was a particularly intense, short childbirth experience lasting one hour and 45 minutes from being woken to baby born, I remember at the end of the birth, I was kind of, my head was up um, uh, looking towards the ceiling. And I can remember the midwife calling me, you know, as if from a tunnel far away, Nadia, Nadia, don't you want to find out what you've got? You know, and I'm being pulled back in. So it's a very interesting it's a very interesting place, which sadly, of course, as soon as you step into a hospital with bright lights and machines and uh, all of the paraphernalia of a clinical ward and, you know, procedures happening all the time, it, it's just not experienced. Even if there's no intervention, it's just, it's just not experienced in the same way. And of course, Mother Nature is giving women these hormones to buffer them as well. So it's, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a positive physiological birth experience, pain is an interesting concept. Whereas, you know, when you're in a hospital, it's a very different experience. It's a lot more painful. It can be a lot more painful. Yeah, this has been so, so fascinating. I would like to ask you perhaps to end about you've written um, that you have a special interest in female empowerment and female spirituality, and you know, you certainly expressing those themes here, but you've also engaged in, you're talking about, you know, yoga, Shivananda, Theravada Buddhist practices, etc. Many of these different systems you've explored, and you've talked about people like Angela Farmer, and, you know, break, breaking away from some of those systems. What, when you think of female empowerment and female spirituality, are you thinking of it primarily within the birthing context? Or do you see it more broadly than that? And if so, what, what can you say about your own, I suppose, journey uh, in, in that regard and your own, the understandings that, have, that you've gained from, from exploring these themes? Mm. Well, my interest is broader. My, my, my work has been and my life experience and my 
passion has been really focused on pregnancy and birth and this journey of becoming a mother. And of course, not all women are taking that journey. Um, and uh, I have become much more interested now. I mean, that part of my, my own physical uh, birthing days are over. Um, and of course, uh, the, my interest in spirituality still continues deeply and will continue for the rest of my life. So there is a, uh, a, a, a thread there <clears throat> all the way through. And of course, what's happening now is you have uh, a, um, a resurgence in uniquely feminine uh, spiritual practices. You know, we have the, uh, an interest, a rising interest in Wicca, and uh, of course, um, the red thread and female shamanism is uh, rising and increasing. And although I remain very much rooted in yoga because it's the practice that I've grown up with, it's the practice that continually uh, ceases to interest me, um, I'm influenced by what's happening around me. And of course, I feel very excited. I feel, I feel excited as a woman. You know, the, the, there have been so many uh, changes over the last few decades um, in uh, uh, what is available to a woman. And you know, the explosion in female sexuality is another huge area. Um, that I know some of your speakers have uh, touched on as well. Um, but that, that's an area that's very interesting to me too, personally, as well as, as um, practically. So all of, these, all of these threads are coming together as women uh, reconnect with their cycles and so doing also readjust their sexuality. Um, Women are, we've, we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of teachers and a whole movement uh, um, re-examining the relationship between the masculine and the feminine. Of course, those, uh, uh, those relationships are, are also apparent in the teachings of yoga with Shiva and Shakti and the, uh, the opposite principles. So, you know, to be a woman, is it's an interesting time to be a woman. I think women feel very powerful or feel increasingly, women certainly who are exploring are perhaps rediscovering their power. And I, I'm also talking from the vantage point of a 50 year old, you know, so I'm kind of at a point in my life where I hope I'm coming into my power. But I do feel that you know, in every way, you know, women are waking up to uh, a remembering of what it means to be a woman on women's terms. You, uh, you know, I, um, I, I, I suppose I'm a feminist because I am very much interested in 
but of course, especially in childbirth, you know, women reclaiming their power, but I'm interested in it sexually. I'm interested in, uh, I'm interested in, I'm interested in, interested in it within the domain of the teachings of yoga. You know, we've inherited this masculine lineage and yet the majority of practitioners are women. So it's, you know, a, re, a reworking and a redeveloping of some of these teachings uh, uh, to reflect the needs of women. But ultimately, you know, I'm an equalist. So uh, I'm also, uh, I, 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 I try, I, I try to, to, to shy away from, you know, the anger that is, for example, in the birthing community, there's a lot of anger and a lot of reactivity and, <clears throat> and, I, and I understand it. I understand why it's there, but it's not, I, I don't believe it's the solution in the same way that, you know, the angry, uh, <clears throat> the, the anger and the anger in any, in any area, anger can be, it can be motivating. And I certainly felt angry. I had a lot of anger in me towards uh, the, health system and the way that I was um, dealt with, it upset me deeply and I felt angry about it. And it, anger can be motivating and it's good when it's motivating. But ultimately, <clears throat> you know, we have to, um, we have to find a way to, I, I don't want any, I don't, I don't wish, for any woman to have to fight during a time of huge vulnerability, where, where, you know, wherever that is, that might be in the bedroom, or it might be in, it might be on the labor ward. You know, we have to hold on to, uh, and that's what I meant about being a woman on woman's terms, you know, which is what the, uh, what all of the female spiritualities is, is bringing back to us. So it's an interesting time to be a woman. It's a good time to be a woman. What does it mean to be a woman on women's terms? And what, are, what would you see as the key, you talked about reworking of lineages such as yoga, or I suppose certain meditation lineages. What would you see to be you know, in your own experience, I'm not necessarily asking you to make a sort of final sweeping statement on it, but what are your reflections, or maybe you have that, but what are your reflections on the key reworkings? How have you had to adjust your relationship to these sorts of systems um, mm -hmm. from that point of view? Well, I, I, can, I, I can certainly talk about yoga because uh, I've thought about this a lot and uh, um, I, 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 I can see clearly what has been wonderful, for example, in pregnancy yoga, which has seeped through, I mean, it seeps through into all my classes, has been the uh, simple things like the transition from straight lines to curves, from uh, fixed to fluid, and from austerity to a softening and an opening. And, and you know, that's kind of very much uh, 
you know, those are polarities. But uh, in, in pregnancy yoga is the ultimate expression of yoga for women because it's, it's you know, it's yoga for a, a unique, uh, a unique experience in a, in a female body's life. And it's necessary to, uh, you, you know, it's not just, it's not just about adapting the, the postures, it's about developing a new practice. And I'm influenced, as you know, by dance very much, and I'm influenced by free movement. And also uh, uh, the, the, the sexuality of childbirth has been something that is also paralleled in things like birth dance you know, and the, the, the waves and the spirals and the circles and the flow and, the, you know, all of these beautiful movements. Actually, the origins of belly dancing uh, can be found in, in traditional birth dance. And so, you know, pregnancy yoga is being fed by traditional dances. Um, we, we, we sit in circle. Women have gathered in circles from the beginning of time. And so pregnancy yoga is all about the circle of women. And a circle of women is incredibly, it's an incredibly nourishing place to be on every dimension. You know, whether, whether you're practicing, whether you're talking, of course, that's one thing women do so well, isn't it? They love to talk but talking from a place of presence and compassion. And that follows through to the other side. I, I just recently started hosting a mother's, co-hosting with a doula friend of mine, Erin, um, co-hosting a maternal uh, wisdom circle. And, you know, it's, it's witnessing and bringing compassion and empathy and meditation and mindfulness to the maternal experience so that, you know, mothers can, it's the same, I mean, the women's circles are everywhere, but mothers can't usually make those. <laughs> or it, you know, or, or, or they just need, sometimes they need more supporting, especially, you know, new young mothers. So there's, there, there, are, there are lots of ways. Well, Nadia, this has been so, uh, fascinating. Where can people find out more about you? Of course, I'll include links to everything in the show notes. But if someone wants to find out more about your work, where can they find you? They can find me via my website, which is my name, NadiaRafat.com. And um, yeah, I mean, everything is on there. I'm working with pregnant women in person, but also virtually. And I've moved into uh, working with teachers now as well, which I'm just loving, satisfying. So, um, and I'm also working with non-pregnancy as well, pelvic healing and awakening. Uh, I run a pelvic healing and awakening course, which is again, a weaving together of all the threads that we've spoken about today. So it's all there. <laughs> it's all on my website. Wonderful, Nadia Rafat, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.